Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to season two of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Vinita Patel. Vinita is a medical doctor specializing in pediatrics, but is also trained in nutritional therapy. Very few people have this unique set of skills and experience, and I'm excited to find out more about her approach to improving children's health and eating habits. So, without further ado, Vinita, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. Now, Vinita, you have 20 years' experience in paediatrics and working with children. Yeah. What made you want to study nutritional therapy? So I had um, almost completed my training as a paediatrician, but throughout uh, my training as a medical student and as a junior doctor, I had always had an interest in nutrition for my own interest. But I had never pursued it, as, as in I'd never done a BSc or done anything formal in terms of training. So it was always my own reading. And then I got to a point where I had to stop my training, and um, partly because my son was unwell. And after a few years, I got the opportunity to go back into training. But they made it a little bit difficult. So I looked at other options to mm-hmm. see what I could do. A friend of mine had started at CNM, which is College of Naturopathic Medicine. Yes. And when I looked at her notes and her lecture um, list, I was completely fascinated and realised that this was what I wanted to study. So I spent two years doing that. So you now work in paediatrics, or you certainly work with children. Yeah. How has learning about nutritional therapy influenced your practice? I'm very fortunate that I work in community paediatrics where we are taking quite a holistic approach to children's health anyway. Um, We have the luxury, I would say, in the NHS of having an hour with our patients. So we really can look at every single aspect, not just their health, but also their development Mm -hmm. and family history, pregnancy history. So we can look at almost from a functional medicine point of view, the timeline Um, We can look at what's going on in the wider community around them because we look at safeguarding and all of those things. And so the training which I've gained from nutritional therapy means that I can use some of those skills and Mm -hmm. add in some of those factors to when I'm making a plan for a child. Um, And particularly in one of my main sort of clinics is the Childhood Obesity Project. Right. So I understand that's an integrative project where you work with in a multidisciplinary team. What do you do and how does it work? Yeah, so we have, um, again, we have a wonderful team of myself as the paediatrician. Mm-hmm. We have a family therapist who's looking at the psychological side of things, how the family dynamics are working. Then we have a fitness or physical activity specialist who's amazing. She's also trained in Tai Chi and all sorts of mindfulness practices. Um, And she takes children out to actually do activities with them, see what's feasible during their day. 
Um, and we have a dietitian, and mm-hmm. she also comes from a mental health background. So she's very open to different options rather than being kind of static and just going by the guidelines which we would know about from the NHS. Yes. So she's very open to adapting things for children and for families. So we're lucky to work within a team mm-hmm. and we're also lucky to have an, a year with children. So we're not just working with the child, but also their family. Yes. As they're only four to 12 year olds, we have to work with the parents, with the siblings, with aunts, with grandparents. We love having grandparents mm-hmm. and um, getting that year where the team are working intensely and I see them every three months for their assessments means that we really can make some impact. I just want to circle back to, I can't imagine child children being really interested in Tai Chi. <laughs> how, how has that been? So we often start our um, assessments with a practice together. Yes. So when the family comes in, we all just get together and it might just be doing some breathing exercises or some stretching and it just sets the tone for the assessment. So the assessment can run for about two hours. Mm-hmm. So it just sets that nice atmosphere if the child comes in they're a bit frazzled or they they might have a diagnosis of ADHD it just calms everything down we also have an outdoor space so if they need to just go out we might just go and run around with them outside and do the stretching outside Great. so we're really flexible and we really tailor it to each person yes and it sounds very reactive as well you tailor it to the child's needs not just this kind of um broad approach yeah so that's one of the key aspects is that because we're seeing children who are particularly coming from difficult either backgrounds or they have another diagnosis they're the families who can't access the group um, approach so we have a tier two which is a an eight to ten week group approach that the family can go and engage sort of two evenings a week Mm -hmm. but not everyone can commit to that not everyone can um access that so if the child has particular learning needs then they particularly might not be able to access that and so that's where we step in so we can do a a bespoke program Mm -hmm. we look at exactly what are the drivers what are the triggers what are the issues for this family and really focus on those so if it's um, psychological if there's trauma which we see a lot of in the area that we work in then the family therapist is key for that so we really begin with the main issue before we even go anywhere near talking about food and diet and things like that a truly holistic approach it is yes really lucky to have that now children can sometimes be quite reluctant to change they can especially when it comes around food we've all heard of fussy eaters absolutely and Are there any interventions that you use which seem to be particularly effective when trying to change a child's eating habits? Yeah, so for the children that we see, obviously they're from 4 to 12, so they may have established some fussy eating and it might be something that they've been doing for several years. So just to unpick that and to work on it can take a long time. Mm -hmm. But the key is just to be persistent and to work at the at the pace of the family. So what can the family actually manage? Because if you try and just implement something, a whole regime, that's not practical for them. Nobody's going to start. Yes. But if you just say, okay, this child, they like eating one particular food. Can we just add in something to that food so the flavour remains the same, the, the texture remains the same, but they're getting the added benefit of, say, a vegetable? Mm-hmm. 
and really take it at that pace, which the dietitian can do because she's seeing them sometimes every two weeks. But in general, we tend to work with the family's preferences. So if they are from a certain cultural background, then we do encourage them to go back and eat the foods that they were used to culturally. And often that works very well. Yeah, fantastic. And what you said there about changing the whole lifestyle, yeah. it seems to be with adults as well. It Everyone, is. It's small incremental changes over time which seem to have the biggest long-term benefit. Yeah, and those are the ones that are sustainable as well. So. Yes, and that's why working with a child over a year, yes. I imagine works incredibly more, or is incredibly more effective than just a 10-20 minute yeah. consultation. Absolutely. So that's where, where our project is quite unique. And unfortunately, um, we've just recently been given the funding to continue at least for another year and a half. So we hope that we can carry on doing that work. As you said, it seems to be the team that you work in seems to be quite novel and u- unique. Yes. Is this available nationwide or why is that not the case? So this project is based on the NICE guidelines, which... Um, have shown that multidisciplinary approaches which are Mm community-based and which are a family approach are the most effective rather than just working with one dietitian and maybe just seeing someone on their own rather than as a whole family. Having said that, the key problem is always funding. Yes. So when people have set up similar types of projects they've never had the sustainability to carry on running. So that, I would say, is one of the main things. The other thing is just the interest. So when I was asked to join back as a community paediatrician, it was partly because of my interest in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I was told that there are not many community paediatricians interested in nutrition. Wow. Yet we have such a big problem with childhood obesity in this country... And the only people who we can refer to are endocrinologists or diabetic specialists in the hospital. Yes. And pretty much they'll only see the, the children who have already got abnormal blood sugars or blood um, sugar profiles. Mm-hmm. So what about this whole huge number of children who cannot access that because they don't fulfill those criteria, yet their BMI may be above the 90th centile? And they're suffering all sorts of other health complications. Yes. From my point of view, I think that should be in the community. But Mm -hmm. again, it's funding and it's interest and it's um, people's experience. So if they're not experienced in running these sorts of things, then they're not likely to set them up. So do you think that's an underlying factor? The main underlying factor why this isn't nationwide is purely because we are underfunded? I would have to say so, yes. Because the model that we're working in is one that could be rolled out, mm-hmm. but even our model is is being pinched by public health funding, really, right. which is where the funding mainly comes from. And most people are being pinched by public health funding, so health visitors, school nurses, and we're having a problem across the community. I think you seem to be paving the way, and I wish you all the best and the very greatest success with the project. Thank you. Now... Is it, when you're working with parents, is it that they aren't aware of, or they may be following government guidelines as it pertains to nutrition and it isn't Mm -hmm. working, 
or are they not aware of nutritional resources available? I would say that mostly parents don't look at guidelines. They are mostly just doing the best that they can Mm -hmm. within their time constraints, which is the main problem. The secondary one is financial constraints, particularly in the area that we work. We have such a wide demographic, but we have many more from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And, And then the third thing is just a bit of knowledge. So they would rather somebody talk to them or that they were given things in a different um, format than have to go on and look on a website to look up what is a healthy balance plate. Yes, I completely understand that. You give that personal touch as well. When someone, I feel when you're speaking to someone, you can relate yeah. to them and what they're going through rather Absolutely. than just read something. Exactly. When I've, spe- when I've been speaking to parents before, it seems like not all children want to eat breakfast in the morning. Yeah. How and given that the the latest healthcare or the healthcare trend seems to be intermittent fasting where adults are omitting breakfast. Right. What is the importance of breakfast for children and what are the right food choices? So for children particularly of school age, mm-hmm. this will be the time that they fuel before they go to school. And if you're not giving them that fuel in the morning, then their brain glucose um will reduce so they will become tired hungry irritable a couple of hours into the school day yes and that generally doesn't coincide with break time so teachers are going to have a problem particularly um, children who may not be having a good balanced diet the rest of the day so that's why if we can at least introduce something healthy at breakfast even if it's um, a healthy smoothie which they have on the run then we at least know that they're going to have some fuel for that morning before they get to their break time or lunch time. So it's really about just maintaining that blood sugar balance for them. Yes, and for parents which seem to be rushed out the door in the morning, what is an easy breakfast for them just to rustle up? What are the common things which you think people can implement in their daily life? So sadly, the easy breakfast in this country is the box cereal. Yes. And I would say that... 90% of them are not cereals that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. However, children are used to eating that. So we're not going to suddenly say stop, but we might be just slightly changing what they're having. So if we're going to be able to add in some nuts, some seeds, some fruit, at least we're going to increase the nutrient profile of what they're having already. Yes, and it's kind of those whole foods which seem to be highly beneficial. Yeah. Increase the amount of whole foods. That's right. And lower the amount of At least getting foods. maybe their one portion of fruit in the morning. Yes. Some people are very open to having things like scrambled eggs. So mm-hmm. try and have that one or two days a week if you have that time. But again, it's down to the time factor. Always, it seems to be the case <laughs> yes. in this modern age. That's right. When a child presents themselves and they don't want to eat vegetables mm. at all. Yeah. It's not for them. They don't maybe like the bitter taste of greens, which we know are highly beneficial for health. Yes. How can you change a child's eating habits when parents are struggling in this way? So this is probably the most common issue that we face as parents, Mm -hmm. as um, nutrition specialists, as doctors, is how to get the child to eat things that they don't like. And usually number one is the green vegetable. So we're trying to move them from that beige diet 
to having some nutrients in the form of vegetables. And the only way to do it is very gradually. But having repeat exposures is the key for children. So I, I use this three P's kind of mnemonic to say, let children play with vegetables. So right. have them exposed to them anyway. So they're playing with them and smelling them. That would be from a younger age. Mm -hmm. Get them involved in preparation. So if they're not of the age that they can start cooking, at least they can wash vegetables, maybe cut some of the softer ones. And then as they get older, introduce some knife skills so they can cut. And then the third one is having them on the plate. So just introduce them onto their plate. Keep introducing it. And the more often and the more repeat exposures they have, the more likely they are to start tasting it and eventually, we hope, start liking it. I imagine that's obviously much easier to say than it is in practice. However, it's a necessary battle, I think, to get through it. Definitely. And when you do explain these things to parents, the actual importance of vegetables, the why then they are more motivated. So it's not just a blanket, oh yes, the whole country needs to eat more vegetables. This is specific to you and this is specific to your family and your child. And it will help the whole family's health if everybody's having that extra portion. And do, do you see that? Do you see, when, when you're treating a child specifically, do you see the whole family becoming healthier? We do, definitely. So that's one of the key aspects, again, of, of the project with the Healthy Weight Um, children but Mm -hmm. also in general once you guide parents to introducing a slightly different balance of what they're eating so they're having moving towards that half plate of rainbow colored vegetables yes then the whole family benefits because mum is going to want to cook that for the rest of the family she's not going to want to just do it for her child and often it's the dads who actually enjoy that because they feel better, they lose the weight. It's usually the dads who lose the weight first, right. much to the mum's consternation. <laughs> and so the whole family are benefiting, definitely. Brilliant. And I understand many of the families that you work with are from lower income That's backgrounds. Right, yeah. When financial concerns are an issue or mm. in, on the forefront of their minds, Yes. What kind of foods do you advocate which are healthy or that you perceive as healthy and will benefit them as? So again, we're fortunate that being an outreach project, the dietitian can take the families to shops or to markets Mm -hmm. or to whatever's local for them and just take them and say, what do you normally look for? What do you normally buy? And just show them what options are available and how they can use them. So if they have, <clears throat> say in Brixton, we mentioned there's a market. If they have access to going to a market where they can pick up some cheap vegetables. Yes. Yes, they may be the ones which are too ripe or need to be used straight away. But how can we use that in a maybe a batch cook, mm-hmm. which we can partly freeze? Um, and also... Um, just helping families understand that it's not necessarily more expensive to cook whole foods. So those those aspects, being able to actually reach out to families, yes, really helps those. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose just navigating the variety of yeah. ingredients on nutrition labels as well can't hurt. Definitely, one yeah. of the things that they always do is is look at labels, and just saying, well, you need to think about things which are off label so rather than just worrying about what's in your cereal 
why don't we think about just having a vegetable breakfast, having leftovers? Because often families, say, from different backgrounds would be having that. They wouldn't be having a cereal culturally. Yes, absolutely. Now, are there any other lifestyle factors um, other than nutrition which seem to be effective when working with these families? So obviously the physical activity is um, another key. Yes. Unfortunately, nowadays in schools, the um, amount of PE which is done and the intensity of exercise which is done has reduced so much that we can't rely on that. So previously, we, we would have said that children going to school, they are naturally much more active, yes. obviously moving around the classroom, moving around the playground. But when you're in London, your playground space is a lot less. Obviously, there's that factor. Mm-hmm. People traveling to and from school, they might be choosing to take the bus. So we have a lot of things that we're working uphill against. Um, we are trying to get schools signed up to um, initiatives like the Daily Mile, which yes. are brilliant because it just means that the whole school, teachers included, have to do that um, intense activity, not having to change into their PE clothes. So there doesn't take as much time as mm. doing a lesson and you're using whatever space is available. So whether it's partly indoor, partly outdoor. So we're, we're, we're actually working with schools to encourage that. But when we're working with the families, we need to see what's practical for them. So if it's just adding some activity into their commute, yes. which is the easiest one. So mm. on the school run, let's avoid bus for certain parts or for a whole part. Then that would be the easiest way because you're then not encroaching on other family time. And would that be just getting off the bus maybe a few stops earlier? Yes, or even just avoiding the bus in the summer. Mm-hmm. So again, it's people use the weather as an excuse. <laughs> so our physical, physical activity specialist is very good at getting people out, getting them into their all-weather clothing so oh, that they're not put umbrella. off by the, by the weather. <laughs> yes, and, um, and then just showing them what the options are. So we can take this road, which has more of a hill that's going to give you that added bit of intensity and again it doesn't take many more minutes than the other road so that's how we can work with the families in terms of physical activity yes and i've read recently that um schools in the u.s some of them practice mindfulness and meditation as part of their their daily routine is that something which you advocate as well or do you see schools doing that now We're beginning to see a real surge in interest from teachers and from schools in that area. So my personal experience is that I went to a school where they practiced meditation. So I was um, initiated at the age of 11 and then we had two opportunities in the day, morning and evening, to have 15 minutes of silence where we could practice either the meditation that we initiated or our own practice Mm -hmm. so I grew up with that and I realized the benefits because later on I could just tap into that practice and use it whenever I was feeling anxiety or worry particularly things like exam times yes so I really could see that and I went back to work in that school when I was um, a school doctor for that school And again, I I saw that they continued that practice and how beneficial it was. Although 
a certain age of teenager kind of tries to rebel against it, but they do at least have that understanding that it's available to them. Often they come back to it when it's GCSE or A-level times and they say, I'm so glad that I was able to do that, that I knew how to do that. So I've seen that in practice for many, many years. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing this surge in interest and schools are all getting teachers trained in mindfulness. And I think that introducing it at primary age is when it's most beneficial because then it's just part of their life they don't think of it as something strange or unusual and you don't have to do it you can just do it in a kind of very relaxed way you can just put some music on and say this is our quiet time you don't have to call it anything special yes and I, th I think the teachers who have taken it on board have really seen benefits in the children um, and in our group, we've obviously got um, Tai Chi. We also have people who meditate regularly. Mm -hmm. So again, we sometimes just do a, a little two minutes quiet just to bring everything down, just to calm everything down. Yeah, oh, that sounds fantastic. And I, I can definitely speak from personal experience when yeah. I practice mindfulness. I can mm. certainly have a, I seem to have a degree of or better stress resilience, should yes, I say, on my daily life. And especially when I was studying at university, that certainly helped. Right, yeah. I think we know that stress is the number one problem now in this mm -hmm. country. And anything that we can do to equip people to manage it, you know, the earlier that we get those messages in, the better. I understand you have a particular expertise in gut health. Yeah. What do you see as a major contributing factor for children when they present with general daily gut issues, IBS, digestive problems, things like that? Yeah, so um, one of the commonest things that children present with is abdominal pains. Right. And often they've had a lot of tests or investigations which are all negative. Mm -hmm. So the doctor then says there's nothing wrong with them. They're either just putting it on because they don't want to go to school. Right. And if you can't link it to any foods, then just carry on. There's not much that doctors really can offer beyond that or even gastrointestinal specialists. So that's often when they come to see me to say, but they really are in pain. Is there something else we can do? So I can look at the again, I can look at the whole picture. So we're looking at... Um, the diet in detail but we're also looking at are there any other factors so we can look at the health of the microbiome we can look at have they had loads of antibiotics the whole picture and yes. see how does that feed into their symptoms and are there any other symptoms alongside it and then one of the tools I can use is the elimination diet and I do stress that that's only a short-term thing so yeah. we're not going to be telling you to cut out major food groups for a long time. But let's see what happens. Let's try and work with healing the gut, do a sort of a five-hour protocol with them. Yes. And pretty much, I would say, most children respond to that. Um, whether we do any stool testing or not doesn't actually make too much difference. Obviously, it can guide us a bit more. So parents are very happy to know that they can just... Uh, adopt this program for a short amount of time and see if it has benefits and if their child then has no symptoms they're very happy 
Wonderful. And what is, just for listeners, the 5R protocol? So the 5R protocol is a stepwise program. Initially, we're trying to remove anything that might be causing a symptom. So we're removing the key allergens, which are often dietary related. So they would be the things like gluten, dairy, things like processed soy, corn, sometimes other things like eggs. Mm -hmm. And we're also trying to remove anything that might be a pathogen in the bowel. So we're removing, say, somebody's picked up a parasite that might be sitting there. So if we do a stool test, then we're more likely to know if there is anything there. But sometimes we hear that the family may have traveled, the child may have been abroad, picked Mm -hmm. up a gastrointestinal bug. So then we have more of a pointer as to what we need to remove. And then the next stage is to start to replace the nutrients which are needed for both gut healing, but also repopulating the microbiome. Mm -hmm. So we would be adding in prebiotics, probiotics, and also the foods which are supporting that. So the foods which are high in fiber. And then we want, and as part of that re-inoculation, we want them to take a supplement probiotic, but we do want to work on their underlying population through foods as well. And then the last part of the program is to repair. So if there is any area of what we call leaky gut or gut permeability, then we need to give the fuel for those gut cells to repair. So we're giving those often in supplement form, but often we can add in foods such as bone broth. And then the last one is to retain that. So we want to continue that good work that we've done in those weeks and sometimes that means just changing the balance of the diet so that they're not having maybe gluten three times a day mm-hmm. that we save that for occasional or just maybe dinner time yes and we're adding in many more of the vegetable fibers again and introducing them gradually like we talked about before yeah fantastic I actually spoke to Christine Bailey recently mm. which, and she was speaking about how kids can have allergens and intolerances yeah. like maybe don't present themselves as severe symptoms. That's right. But they can have a long-lasting effect on the child's gut health and it might just be that occasional stomach ache or something, mm. something which you really can't pinpoint. Yeah. And with dairy, especially some people think it's just the sugar in dairy, mm. lactose, yeah. or lactose intolerance which causes the problem, but it can actually be the protein That's in right. dairy. That's right, yeah. Um, which not often people are aware of. That's right. In the healthy weight team, yeah. what is the biggest challenging case that you've come across and how did you overcome it? So I would say that teamwork was key mm-hmm. to helping families overcome these problems. But the demographic that we serve, there are many issues um, around safeguarding. Yeah. So those are are kind of the most difficult aspects because they have to be approached very sensitively mm-hmm. and there are lots of knock-on effects so if we're going to report a family yes. to safeguarding then obviously that will have lots of different consequences so it can be very tricky but we're we're well supported as a team and if I use an example so we had um, a child who I think she was about the age of 12 And she was essentially caring for her mum, who had some learning difficulties, but particularly some mental health issues. And it was a a very difficult case in the beginning because 
there were no changes that were possible for this family because of all the other issues going on, the financial issues, the state of the home, the fact that the child was sometimes staying home because she didn't want to leave her mum on her own, she was not going to school, many, many different factors. Mm -hmm. And it was in this case that we felt that we really needed the support of social care. Yes. So we did make the referral and eventually the child was taken um, into care. So she was a looked after child. Mm -hmm. So she went to a foster family. Now, this could have gone to one of two ways, but actually the outcome was very positive for this child. So she was taken out of the situation where she was needing to be a carer and she could, for the first time, focus on herself. And with the support of the foster family, obviously guiding her as to what is the healthy diet and doing a bit more physical activity, this girl was transformed by the end of the year. And it was so wonderful to see. And we maintained her contact with her mum, so we always included her mum. We didn't kind of just see her on her own. Um, so the foster family and the mum and the child all benefited from this. So that was what I would say one of the hardest cases, but actually had the best outcome. That's a truly wonderful story. Thank yeah, you so it really much was. for yeah. sharing that with us. Now, just to jump ahead onto another topic, and mm -hmm. we're very smoothly going to transition into the, the topic of Indian, uh, traditional Indian medicine. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know you've expressed an interest in traditional Indian medicine yes. known as Ayurveda. That's right. And this right. has been practiced for thousands of years. What can we learn from these ancient healing modalities? So my interest in Ayurveda really is because from childhood, if we had any minor ailment, mm -hmm. the first port of call was always the spice drawer. So if we had something simple, often it was turmeric, which is our favorite in our family yes but I really began to see how that science and that culture and that knowledge was um, dissipating so my grandmother had all this knowledge my mum's oldest sister had all this knowledge but when it came to my mum who was much younger she had less of that knowledge and as I got older and understood more about medicine I still maintained that uh, background understanding of how to use our cultural foods and spices for health and that was something I always thought I would explore further later on in life I didn't yes. really know when mm -hmm. um, but doing the um, training with um, CNM because it's naturopathic we did have some um, influence from different sort of traditional medicine backgrounds so we had some introduction to them all and um, lecturers often alluded to them um, but it was good because they were adding in the science so we we know that there are now 7,000 studies on curcumin and turmeric and I knew that this was being used for 7,000 years yes so the two together meant that I've got some science to back up what I'm saying yeah and ultimately if I'm telling people to use something like a spice they're not going to have any negative outcome from it mm -hmm. and most likely they're going to gain some health benefit from it um, but I've not actually studied Ayurveda in depth however I do see people responding very well to it so with my son we took him to India 
there was an Ayurvedic specialist there alongside all the sort of regular hospital stuff that goes on. So we actually used that in our own child and saw how it transformed his health. Mm -hmm. So we have first-hand experience of it, but we also know a lot of practitioners who have amazing outcomes with their patients. So we know that if you do go down that route and really commit to it, that there are lots of um, benefits, particularly in chronic disease, but we also know that the science is catching up. So yes. there's no harm in it, really. Mm-hmm. Particularly um, functional medicine uses a lot of Ayurveda influence. So they talk about things like um, using ghee for the butyrate con- content, which is a fuel for our gut cells. Yes. And we know that if you go to India, the first thing in an Ayurvedic retreat is that you have this medicated ghee yep. for several days <laughs> so, and that the focus is on gut health. So there's not really a dichotomy between nutritional therapy, functional medicine and mm-hmm. Ayurveda for me, because I've kind of understood both sides of it. Yes, there seems to be more crossover than people think. And what I find so incredibly fascinating is that these herbs and spices that have been used for thousands of years for Mm -hmm. certain ailments, the science is only starting to come out now about the proof, really, that these these herbs and spices actually work. And the people who are saying, well, where's the evidence-based RCT? Yes. Those are the people that I respond to saying, well, what's the negative effect of having some of these things? Mm -hmm. Pretty much none. So yeah, and as a doctor, that the the first rule: do no harm. Absolutely. If something isn't going to do harm but have benefit, why wouldn't you implement it? Yeah, and when we see our patients from different cultures, by guiding them back to their traditional diets, often there are there is a lot more use of herbs and spices. Mm-hmm. There's also um, always a fermented food in their culture. Yes. So I've learned about all the different fermented foods from different cultures. Mm-hmm. So there there is some kind of um, connect with them rather than you telling them, oh, you have to go and take a probiotic or you have to go and, and transform your diet, take a Mediterranean diet, for example. Yes. So you're connecting with something that they're aware of, something that they've grown up with. And often it tastes better. Yeah. <laughs> it's win-win. <laughs> Do you think healthcare in this day and age is integrated enough? And if not, why not? So I'm sure that most people's answer to this is that it's not. Mm-hmm. But I know that in my small project that we're doing, we are integrated. So it yes. is possible. And the fact that a lot of teams are multidisciplinary now and that it's encouraged. So within hospitals, it's encouraged to have a multidisciplinary team. And people are thinking a bit more widely. So they are thinking, let's have a nutrition or dietitian specialist on our team. Mm-hmm. But even having a mental health specialist on our team absolutely so i think that the understanding is growing the willingness to do it is there but again it's always down to funding so if we can show models that work then hopefully people will be more likely to take it on board because actually hiring in someone a therapist is far um, more financially viable than hiring in another couple of consultants yes yet the effects may be much wider mm-hmm. so you might be able to help um discharge maybe 100 patients who have ibs if they've seen a psychologist or a psychiatrist 
rather than just being under the consultant gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. So I think that as people show these benefits through, you know, audits and research, then hopefully we'll be moving more towards that. I've heard James Maskell speak about this before, Mm. and he was suggesting, I believe, though don't quote me on this, is (laughs) that the initial cost in these kinds of integrative approaches might be more. Mm. But the overall cost in the long term will yeah. be significantly less because you've changed people's lifestyles. That's right. And not just treating a symptom. So we just need more evidence for the NHS to do it now. <laughs> and then it will come in. <laughs> yeah. How do you see medicine evolving as new research is coming out in the lifestyle and functional medicine area? Um, so the interest is there, the research is coming. And I think that the junior level of medical students and junior doctors are definitely keen to take it up. So they're looking to train themselves in it. They're asking for more um, lectures in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And in fact, I've been part of, um, in King's um, College, Yes. they have a King's Undergraduate Medical Education in the Community Project, CUMEC. Wow for short, (laughs) and it actually exposes students to going out in the community at quite a junior stage. Yes. But alongside that, they're getting training in all sorts of um, uh, lectures. So they're having motivational interviewing, behavior Mm -hmm. change. I've given the nutrition side of it, and I talked about obesity. Um, Friends of mine, like Zoe Williams, did the physical activity. So we had a great sort of wide, yeah, um, range of lectures for them. And then they went out in the community and were able to put things into practice. So there are these initiatives and there are people like NutriTank who are getting medical students really on board with learning about nutrition, but also lifestyle. So I think at this level, at the medical student and junior doctor level, the interest is definitely there. Yes. And I'm hoping that that will translate to when they become more senior, Mm -hmm. hoping that they do stay in the NHS to do this, and also the, the public health side of things. So obviously, if the interest is there, people will want to do it, but they need funding to do community projects to actually implement these things so if some of them do go into public health that will also help us fantastic and i suppose the british society of lifestyle medicine as well an undergraduate life that's right uh, society for lifestyle medicine there are so many good societies that are mushrooming now and people are really jumping on and and taking part with all these kind of courses and conferences that are going on for listeners i'll link to everything that we just discussed in the show notes And just one last question, Vanita. It's been great to have you on the show, but can you leave listeners with three tips to help improve their health and their child's health? I'm sure all nutritionists agree with my first tip. It's to do with gut health, but it it is about vegetables. And we already touched on how can we increase the number of vegetables that children are eating, but also that families are eating. So I'll go back to my three Ps. So let children play with the vegetables, let them prepare, get them involved with cooking, and then put them on the plate. So offer them, keep offering them. So it's just that repeat exposure, getting them used to the taste and the texture. Mm -hmm. And we know that these 
um, preferences are established very, very early. So it's way before they've ever taken a taste of food. It actually starts in pregnancy. So if you can have a healthy pregnancy, eating this wide variety of vegetables, then your child is more likely to adapt to those flavors. And then obviously when you're breastfeeding, the child takes on those flavors and smells mm -hmm. and then weaning starts. So they've actually had these exposures way before they've had any tastes of food. Um, and then I think the second one we also touched on. So my second tip is always to think of spices and herbs. So adding in spices and herbs to your um, daily routine. And I have a kind of top three. So I always talk about my favorite turmeric and then another amazing anti-inflammatory, particularly this time of the year in the winter, is ginger. And then the third one, which, which is good for a lot of different things, but particularly for blood sugar balance, is cinnamon. So I always encourage people to add those into their drinks, into their food, and just get used to having them in their diet so that their children are having them as well, because they're not very strong flavors. Children mm -hmm. tend to not mind having those. And then I think for my third tip is just about water. So I still see so many people who are dehydrated mm -hmm. and it's the key to their headaches. It's the key to their tummy aches, their constipation. And if we can get children drinking water regularly and getting that habit from an early age, then they're much more likely to do it later in life. They're going to be able to concentrate in their exams. So it has lots of benefits, but... The one tip which I say is to just start with your morning drink. So have that big mug or glass of water first thing in the morning. You can warm it up. You can add lemon. You can do whatever you want, but just have it. Yes. And if you establish that habit from an early age, then they're much more likely to carry that on. So I think those are my probably my top three tips. Those are wonderful tips. I'll certainly take away from me there. I'm going to start incorporating <laughs> turmeric, cinnamon oh, and brilliant. ginger more in my diet. <laughs> I think golden milk, speaking about Ayurvedic yes. before, is a key one. And I'll put a recipe for listeners in the show notes of what golden milk is. Fantastic. Vanita, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and I really, really hope that we can do this again soon. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.